And so the text, as I said, is from Revelation 4, which you just read. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn 69, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but as I observe what is going on right now in this so-called politically correct world, I sometimes get a feeling of powerlessness and despair. Things are happening which only a few years ago seemed unthinkable. There's an increased hatred for God and his people and everything they stand for. Biblical virtues, which were once held in honor, are now ridiculed and discarded. Biblical principles are constantly under attack, and our freedoms are more and more being curtailed. What is this going to lead to? How is this going to affect our lives, the lives of our children, of our grandchildren? How is this going to affect the church? Where is this all headed? It's a bit scary, isn't it? For comfort, I turn to the book of Revelation. This book was written by the Apostle John after he received the revelation from the Lord God on the island of Patmos. The Lord Jesus gave him that vision to encourage the seven churches in Asia who were going through some exceptionally difficult times. Many of them lost their reputations, their jobs, their properties, and their freedoms. Some were put in jail and even killed. These people suffered extreme hardships. Why did that happen? Well, because the world hated them. The Jews hated them because many of the converted Christians were from among them, which meant that they now no longer practiced what they practiced before. For they no longer wanted to play along with society as the establishment Jews did. They did not want to compromise their faith in order to receive the same privileges and exemptions and freedoms as the Jews did. The non-converted Jews hated them for it. They felt condemned by the Christians, just like the Pharisees felt condemned by Jesus Christ himself and his followers. They did not want anything to do with them. And so these Jews made sure that the powers that be went along with that. It was a quest for power, a power grab, and it was all political. They didn't want anybody or anything to threaten their way of life. And they needed each other to accomplish that. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. Let's just cooperate together in this way, get out of life as much as we can. And let nobody stop us. That congregation is the way of the world. And so Roman citizens and all the other Gentiles in the province of Asia, where the seven churches were located, went along with such intolerance. As a result, the rulers and all those in cahoots with them made sure that the Christians were not able 
to participate in the economic prosperity, for it was a prosperous time. The province of Asia served as a supplier of all kinds of commodities to Rome, as they had been doing for a long time. At that time that John received his revelation, the province of Asia was flourishing. There was lots of work and lots of money to go around. But to participate in the economy, you needed to belong to the various trade guilds. And those guilds required emperor worship and the worship of the guild gods. Although there were some Christians who did not compromise, the faithful Christians did not. They did not want to serve two masters, Mammon and God. They knew it's either the one or the other. And now to exhort and encourage the seven churches in Asia, the glorious and victorious Jesus Christ gives a most comforting vision to John, and therefore also to us. In the preceding chapters, the glorified Jesus Christ first gives a directly message to each church, commending them for their faithfulness, while at the same time warning them not to go along with the evils of society. And the last thing that he says to the seventh church, to the Christians in Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. In other words, those who persevere will rule with God forever and ever. They will be sitting on their thrones, around the throne of God. And that's the picture that he now paints in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. As you will see, it's a beautiful picture. That's what I will preach to you about. It's about the glorious throne of God. And then we will see three things, that around his throne we encounter in the first place God's majesty, in second place God's holiness, and then finally God's glory. John begins this chapter with the words, after this I looked. That same expression is found throughout the book of Revelation. We might be tempted to think that in this way we get a chronological rendition of what takes place in the future. First this will happen, then that will happen, and then that, and so on. But that's clearly not the case. No, the visions are not about successive events. After this means that now the Lord Jesus gives a new revelation. It's important to highlight this. It's not so that Revelation, the book of Revelation, describes chronological events in the history of the church. No, these are visions of what will happen to the churches throughout the ages. All kinds of things will happen in the first, between the first and the second coming of Christ. Throughout the ages, horrible things will happen. But the book of Revelation wants to highlight that no matter what happens here on earth, God is always on his throne. He is always in control of all things and all events. He's in control of history. But it is the hair that falls from your head or the mountains that fall into the sea. He is in control of all these things. 
And that is why we have this chapter about the throne of God. John hears the same voice that he heard in the first chapter, verse 10, who now says to him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. John is invited to come up to the dwelling place of God. And immediately that happens. John's spirit is completely taken over by the Holy Spirit, and in a vision, he is taken right up into heaven. And what does he see? Well, he sees the glorious and magnificent throne of God. And the throne is of central importance. In this chapter, and in the next, which together form a unity, the throne is mentioned no less than 17 times. And it is from the perspective of the throne that John draws a picture for us of what heaven looks like. And it's magnificent. As you will see, it's in the same configuration as the tabernacle of the Old Testament, in the temple. For one thing, the throne, like the ark and the holy of holies, stands central. But someone is seated on that throne. It is clear that he who is seated on the throne is God the Father himself. However, we don't get a description. For that's not allowed. As it says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, God alone is immortal and lives in an unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. And so we are not given a description of God himself, but we do get an amazing picture of God's beauty and power and centrality to everything. He is shown in brilliant and beautiful light. He has the appearance of jasper, which has the brilliance like that of a diamond. He also has the appearance of a stone called carnelian, which is either dark red or orange red or reddish brown in color. It's a glorious revelation of God in the center of everything, for everything forms a circle around him. First, we have a rainbow around the throne. What does the rainbow remind you of? Well, that reminds us that God is in control of creation, as he showed at the time of the great flood. The covenantal sign of the rainbow reminds us of God's faithfulness and assurance that nothing happens without his will. God rules everything in his power and glory. Floods and earthquakes and all kinds of calamities, including pandemics, can happen. But nothing happens without God's control and knowledge and plan. And what is the greatest plan that God has for his creation? Well, no doubt it is the birth of his son. The whole Bible points to him in numerous ways. The Old Testament points to him especially through the sacrifices in the tabernacle and later in the temple. The blood of the sacrificial animals looked forward to the sacrifice on the cross of the Son of God 
for all those who believe in him. For that reason, the book of Revelation also mentions that central truth. For example, in Revelation 12, verse 5, it says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Satan did not want that child to be born. He wanted to destroy this child. And he did everything in order to try to make that happen. But God didn't allow it. This child did have to go to the cross and die, but he rose again from the dead. And in spite of all the evil planned for him, Satan could not snatch him away and claim him, nor those who belong to him through faith, you and I. And you see, that's the way it has been throughout the ages, also today. We may worry and fret about what's happening on earth right now. And we may be afraid of the earthly powers that be, but they're all but pawns in the hands of God. God is in the center always and totally in control. And everything revolves around him. But John is not finished. He also tells us that before the throne are seven torches of fire. Do you know what they are? Those are the seven spirits of God. And those seven spirits represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Every Sunday you hear the words taken from Revelation 1 when you are greeted by the seven spirits. Here in this passage you are reminded that those seven spirits reside before the throne of God. This picture of the Holy Spirit is actually based on Zechariah 4, in which the prophet sees the church as a lampstand. As it says in verse 2, with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the light. The seven churches representing the seven, the churches of all ages, have as their light the seven spirits of God. And the seven spirits refer to the fullness of God the Holy Spirit and thus of the Holy Spirit as such. Beautiful picture. And then John continues with this vision. He says in verse 6 that before the throne is also a sea of glass clear as crystal. And all these elements, they go back to the Old Testament temple. Elements go back to the Old Testament temple. For there you would find the, not only the seven-branched lamp, but the laver as well, which was also referred to as the sea. It is in the laver 
the sea in which the priest would wash his hands and his feet, for he would have to be ritually clean in order to serve before God. And so the sea before the throne of God ultimately refers to the blood of Christ through which our sins are forgiven and through, through which we are washed to be made as white as snow. In this vision, John is also given of the triune God in heaven. For all three persons of the Trinity are here. The Lamb, as represented by the sea of glass, and who, as we know from the following chapter, is approaching the throne of God the Father and is about to take his seat at his right hand. And the Holy Spirit, as represented by the seven torches of fire, and the Father who sits on his throne. Almighty God is here in all his majesty and glory. But he's not just sitting there. He is not passive. No, he is a God who acts. For what else does John tell us? He says that from the throne of God, thunder and lightning comes forth. And that's a reference to God's judgment and to God's holiness. Note well that the thunder and lightning come before the storms. And it indicates that no one and nothing can harm him and that all who belong to him who are sitting around the throne cannot be harmed either. And so he speaks as well. His voice is heard. His thunder and lightning portray his awesome majesty and holiness. And this reminds us of the time just before the Lord God gave his commandments at Mount Sinai. As we know from Exodus 19, verse 16, at that time also thunder and lightning were heard when he spoke to Moses. No one could touch the mountain. Anyone who would do so would surely die. Only those who have been declared to be without sin can approach his holy throne. All others will be struck down. And that is why it is wonderful to see that he also tells us who else sits around that throne. For God is not alone in heaven. No, around his throne are 24 thrones. And on those thrones are seated 24 elders. They are counted worthy to be there in heaven with the almighty and awesome God himself. And that is why they also wear white clothes. They have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So what a great and wonderful picture and what a great blessing. For do you know why? Well, because of whom those 24 elders represent. Those 24 elders represent the church of all ages, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Therefore, the 24 elders refer to you and me. It's as if you and I are already sitting around the throne of God. That's the picture God wants us to have. That's the picture he wants those people in Asia to have as they struggle in their lives 
and as they endure persecution. Brothers and sisters, it is a triumphant and wonderful picture that God gives to us. You and I, we can look forward to being around the throne of God together. That's wonderful, isn't it? That's also what those loved ones of ours who died in the Lord are doing right now. Think about them. Think about where they are. But why 24 elders? And how do they represent us? Well, throughout the scriptures, the number 24 is quite significant. In the first place, we know from 1 Chronicles 24 that there were 24 divisions of priests in the temple. Now, that was the complete contingent of the priesthood. Those 24 divisions represented the total sacrificial service before God. And so, no doubt, those 24 elders before the throne of God represent the priesthood in service to God. You and I, through faith, are also priests. We're prophets, priests, and kings. But there's more. At the end of the book of Revelation, we read about the New Jerusalem. And they were also told about a multiple of twelves. It says in chapter 21, verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The Old Testament church is represented by the twelve tribes, and the New Testament church by the twelve apostles. Together they add up to the number twenty-four, and together they make up the fullness of the church of God. Those 24 elders represent the fullness of the church of God from the beginning of the world to the end. And now, beloved, you have the emerging picture. Just try to visualize it. The throne is in the center. God the Father is seated there. And so is the Son, who is represented by the sea, and who, as you will see in chapter 5, is on the way up to the throne. And the Holy Spirit, who is the light of the church, as represented by the seven torches. And you and I will be among them. Now we have a picture of God in all his majesty and glory. And you and I sharing in this. But wait, there's more. The Lord God is not only a majestic God, he is a holy God. And John also describes that for us. Second point. As you know, God's holiness refers to his purity, to his absolute separation from sin. And the four living creatures spoken of in the last part of verse 6 assure that his holiness is maintained. For look at what we are told about them. These creatures are covered with eyes in front and in back. Each of them also has six wings. And those wings are also full of eyes above and under the wings. Now why are they pictured that way? Well, to indicate that nothing will escape their attention. And they are there day and night. They watch the entrance into heaven and they guard the throne of God, no one can slip by them. 
God's holiness must not be compromised in any way. Nothing unclean may enter or approach. When you study the book of Ezekiel, in the chapters 1 and 10 in Isaiah 6, and then you will note many, sim- many similarities. As a matter of fact, you cannot understand the book of Revelation without being familiar with those prophecies. As you study those passages, you will note that the four living creatures in reality are cherubs, angels. For they also guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden, and they also adorned the cover of the Ark of God, guarding the Holy of Holies. And now we see that in heaven it is their duty to guard the throne of God in heaven. But that's not all they do. They also serve before the throne. And that's why they have six wings. They're very mobile and very quick to serve. And John tells us that they have features like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Those four features indicate their courage, their strength, their intelligence, and their great mobility. And these capacities, with these capacities, they protect and serve before the throne of God. What else do they do? They sing. For John hears the voice of the four living creatures who never cease their singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's also what Isaiah heard when he was called to be a prophet. He also heard that triple holy. Isaiah had to go into the midst of the people to proclaim the judgment of God. For the people of God defiled themselves with their sins. They would not repent. Isaiah, as did all the prophets of old, had to remind mankind of their sins, for God punishes sin. He wants to maintain his holiness. And that, beloved, is as true today as it has always been. God maintains his holiness no matter what. We may live in a filthy world. We live at a time where God's holiness is increasingly trampled upon in so many ways. A man does not want to consider God's commandments. He wants to do whatever feels good for the moment. And so he commits shameful act upon shameful act. Sexual immorality and all kinds of other immorality is not only condoned, but actively promoted. Look at what's going on around us in this world. But God shows himself for who he is. He shows that in the pages of his precious word to us in the Bible... And so we in our lives as Christians in the midst of a heathen people must do our utmost to reflect God's holiness, his purity, and his absence from sin. The four creatures never stop proclaiming God's holiness. In their song they refer to God as the Lord God. The name Lord refers to the Old Testament name Yahweh, the God of the covenant. He will do what he said he will do. He will be true to himself and also to those who belong to him, his people, you and me. 
And furthermore, in their song, God's greatness is also praised, for they refer to him as the Almighty. That name indicates his almighty power. In his almighty power, he will bring this world from its beginning to its end. He created it all, and he will also bring it to its final destination. As we look what's happening daily around us, perhaps thinking about the upcoming election in the United States, and also what is happening in our country, so many things going on. It's easy to think that in all this, God is powerless. After all, why does he allow so many evil things all around us? Why are there so much evil men? Why does he not interfere? We have questions. We ask, perhaps not aloud, why does he give an inoperable brain tumor to a young man who, humanly speaking, still has his whole life before him? Why did he not stop the disease that disabled or killed my loved one? Why did God allow me to be abused? Why does he not stop the ravages of disease and hunger? Why does he not stop the people from blaspheming his name? Yet, beloved, here in this picture of God in heaven, we see him as the almighty God. The four living creatures sing of his almighty power. This is not a world without God. No, he knows what's happening on earth. And he has all things under his control. But he is bringing you and me and his whole creation to the end of times. That's what he wants the seven churches in Asia and also us today to remember. And that is the picture he wants us to have in our minds. For to him not only belongs the power, but also the glory. And of that glory, not only the angels sing, but also man. We come to the final point. Revelation 4 ends with the song of the 24 elders, representing the church of God. That is, all those who believe in God and who died in the Lord. And what do they see? And they give us the perspective of what we will see once we are promoted to heavenly glory. These elders see that God brings all things to their glorious destination. And brothers and sisters, young people, boys and girls, we may struggle here on earth. There's turmoil, mayhem, disease, death. Things are always in a state of flux. We live in a broken world, in a world full of pain and sorrow. Time and again, loved ones are taken away from us. It's a world of sin, full of sin, against which we struggle all, every day. And that's why the elders of the church are constantly busy dealing with their own sins and with the sins of the congregation. They struggle along with the people. They agonize, they agonize about when to admonish and how to admonish. 
when to apply discipline and when not. And they have to deal with heresies and wrong practices creeping into the church. Constantly, they have to be on alert. And so do we all. But that work is not in vain. In the vision of John, we see that the elders, together with the whole church of God, will receive their reward. They will be sitting on thrones. And they will receive their crowns. The text says that the elders lay those crowns that they received before the throne of God. Does that mean that they don't want those crowns? No, not at all. It is an acknowledgement that they received their reward from God alone. And thereby they attribute ownership to God. They belong to him and give thanks to him for all that he has done. For he is the one who equipped them for their task. He is the one who gives them everything that they need. And so, what do we do as we reflect on our own situation right now? Well, brothers and sisters, we continue what we must do. Namely, to worship God in every way possible. We hang on to him through all trials and tribulations. We hang on to him also in the midst of prosperity. We do not depend on earthly splendor or riches because it's nothing worth compared to the riches that we have with God. And so we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be despondent. No, we have every reason to be full of joy. Why? Because God is on his throne. He rules. He is the center of the whole universe. And as long as we put our trust in him, the almighty, glorious God, nothing and no one can do us harm. Because God is on his throne, all is well. To him be the glory. Amen.